Last September, USAFacts.org reported that 48% of Americans are feeling down, depressed, and hopeless during the COVID-19 pandemic. The study showed that 60% of American adults experienced frequency of feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge during the previous seven days. 53% said they experienced not being able to stop or control worrying at least several uh, days during the previous week. And, And I think we can relate to that. It's been a tough year. And even believers struggle with feeling down and depressed and hopeless. As believers, we have hope in Christ, but our hope sometimes is quite dim, quite dim. Sometimes we lack confidence in Christ. Sometimes our faith wavers because our circumstances distract us from who God is, what God is like, and how God cares and provides for us. I think it's important for us to understand that true believers still need to repent of unbelief. Saints, we are secure in Christ. God's promises belong to us who believe. They are ours, and yet we still struggle to trust that our Heavenly Father is actually good and that our Heavenly Father will sustain us. Now, we should not celebrate doubt. We should not make peace with doubt, but we should realize that in our weakness, we do struggle to believe. God's not surprised by that. God does not disown us because of our weakness. He reaches out to us in our struggle and he helps us through what seems very, very daunting to us. Our comfort in the storm of life is that Christ has a firm grip on us. As Christians, we understand that belonging to Christ and trusting in Christ are absolutely essential to having true hope and comfort in life and death. If our confidence in Christ and his word waver, wavers, so will our hope and comfort in life and death. Doubt triggers fear and insecurity, and fear and insecurity trigger doubt as well. So it is extremely important that we look to Christ to find in him and in his word our rest and our security. Brothers and sisters, does it comfort you to know that when you start to sink, Christ will reach down and he will pull you up? Does his promise of future grace ease your wearied soul? This week, I looked over your names and, and I thought about some of your storms, the things that afflict you, the things that you've gone through. And I thought about things like unbelieving spouses, children, and family members, loved ones making really bad decisions, marital troubles, serious health concerns, pain from unfulfilled dreams and hopes, Self-loathing and deep personal insecurities, stress from debt and financial uncertainty, feeling lonely and disconnected, strained relationships with others, feeling frustrated that Christians aren't more discerning and obedient, packed schedules and feeling overwhelmed, fighting sin but not really seeing much progress in sanctification. Sometimes we feel like we're sinking. But here's the truth, Christ is your only hope in the struggle of life and death. 
And because that's true, then just let your heart be glad and hopeful in his steadfast love. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah now and ever. We confess Christ, our hope in life and death. Number one, Christ the considerate. Christ the considerate. Jesus was fully aware of what was happening around him, why it was happening, and how he needed to respond. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, Matthew really likes the word immediately. It has urgency to it. Now, why would Jesus immediately compel his disciples to leave? Now, here's what I think was happening. John 6, uh, 6, 15 adds a little interesting detail. Perceiving then that they, the crowds, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay? The crowds witnessed his supernatural power and knew it could lead to the overthrow of Roman dominance. But Jesus didn't come to take a political throne, a political kingdom. He came to do his Father's will by saving his people from their sins through suffering and death. And I don't think Jesus wanted his disciples getting caught up in the political hype, in political presuppositions which interfered with seeing Jesus as the Christ who suffers and dies for his people's salvation. Jesus wanted his disciples to focus on who he was as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Dr. Morris noted, quote, this was evidently the reason that he packed the disciples off straight away and sent them away to the other side of the lake. It was important that the 12 be not involved in kingmaking and indeed that the whole project be squashed without delay and Matthew stresses this, end quote. And I think Dr. Morris is right. Jesus sent them fast away. Additionally, I think Jesus needed to be alone, to commune with his father as tensions rose in Jerusalem and the cross was looming. I also think Jesus wanted to strengthen the faith of his disciples by the way that he came to them, which is coming. Jesus Jesus knows what's developing in the world. He knows what's developing in your lives. He knows it all too well. And he knows what you need to persevere through it. We want life to be comfortable, but Jesus didn't come to make our lives comfortable, but to save us from our sins and to preserve us through the tempest of this life to prepare us properly to reach eternal life. Now, you may feel like you are completely sinking, but he's still got you. And he's intent on holding you fast. Do you trust that he's still got you? Do you believe that where he's taking you is where you need to be in order to glorify him most? Do you trust that Jesus is working in your circumstances, however hard or however painful they may be, to strengthen you, to sanctify you, to reveal to you more of his goodness and more of his grace? 
You see, if, if you're honest, if you're like me, sometimes you look at your circumstances and it just seems all too daunting. I can't make this. But do you believe he's got you? And that the closer you are to him, the more focused you are on him, the more confident you will be that he is working all things for, you, for your good and that you're going to be more than okay. Number two, Jesus the devout. Jesus the devout. Jesus was completely devoted to his father. His attention was always given to the father's will and to the father's pleasure. Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. He went there to commune with the Father. People wanted to make him king, and he knew this. And Mark says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. He bid them adieu, and he hiked up onto the mountain at a late hour for some alone time to commune with God, to be strengthened evermore for the escalating demands of suffering and sacrifice. Now, why would the Son of God need to pray? You think about that? He possesses omnipotence. Why pray? Well, think about it from this angle. Jesus is the God-man. He is one person with two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. The eternal Son of God took on a real human nature, a human body and a human soul. His human nature and divine nature, they cannot be separated for he is one person, yet they are not mixed or mingled. Neither is he divine one moment and then human another moment. Jesus is all the time God and man, all the time one person with two distinct natures, two distinct and inseparable natures. His humanness needed constant communion with God and constant strength from God. He prayed because he needed to pray to prepare to do God's perfect will. He prayed because he needed strength and he needed endurance and he needed power to be righteous, to think what he thought, to feel what he felt, to serve how he served if we wonder how did he do it all, the answer is clear. By communing with God through constant prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus asked God for what he needed and entirely trusted God to grant him what he needed. Jesus had superlative faith. Now be careful with this. If by faith we mean perfect and unwavering trust in and communion with God. The suffering of Christ, folks, it didn't begin on the cross. Jesus suffered for us throughout his life. As he lived, he suffered for us that we may be delivered. And in order to suffer well to the glory of God and to our eternal life, he needed to pray. He needed to depend on God. Jesus could not have achieved our redemption apart from being a devout human being. Brothers and sisters, since the Son of God needed to pray and commune with God to do what God called him to do, he needed God's strength and he needed God's provision to remain faithful. How important is prayer for you and me in our storms? When we are tempest-tossed, 
Tension over Jesus was mounting in Jerusalem, and the cross was forthcoming. And Jesus, he continued to ready himself through prayer. Might it be that our confidence and comfort in Christ waver because we fail to seek God in prayer? Might our hopelessness be connected to our prayerlessness? You see, prayer is necessary for us because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. We sink when our eyes are not on the Lord Jesus Christ. We sink when we do not trust our Lord's power and his presence. We sink when we do not ask our Lord for his grace and for his spirit and when we do not thank him for these heartening gifts. I'm not devout like Jesus. I waver, I fear, I fret, I doubt. And if you're anything like me, we need to pray. We need to pray with heartfelt longing, Lord, save me. Give me what I need to do your holy will. The only people who cry out with any sense of sincerity and urgency are those who know they will sink apart from the strong hand of God. Number three, Jesus the omnipotent. Jesus the omnipotent. If you're going to trust something to do something for you, you want to know that it's powerful enough to do it, right? Robbie Madison, he is a legendary motorbike stunt performer. Maybe he's from Australia. Maybe you've heard about this guy or seen him on YouTube or whatever, but he holds the world record for the longest uh, motorbike jump. And basically, Robbie makes Evil Knievel look like junior varsity. I mean, this guy is out of his mind. But anyway, back in 2008, Robbie launched off a huge ramp and sailed, I kid you not, 350.98 feet. That's end zone to end zone, folks. That's scary. Stunt cyclists have died attempting shorter distances. He couldn't have made that jump with a 125cc, not with a 250cc, not even with a 450cc, Robbie trusted a specially tuned Honda CR500 stunt bike that could hit the speed, and this is insane for cross a motocross, a speed of 94 miles per hour. That's what he needed to, to make the jump, and he trusted that bike because that bike had the power to make the jump. What would convince you that a person has the power to help you through the deepest possible suffering that you could imagine? What would convince you that, that a person could save you from God's just wrath, knowing what goes through your mind and heart? If you and I are going to trust a Savior, we need to be absolutely certain that that Savior has the power and the authority and the supremacy to fully rescue us without question. We can't be doubting. Otherwise, we would just fear and get all clammy and not really rest. Verses 24 and 25. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Did you catch that? 
You got to let that sink in. He came to them walking on the sea, not swimming, not sailing, not paddleboarding, walking on top of the water in the middle of a ginormous sea. Now, John says they were about three to four miles out. It was dark. It was in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The waves were violent. Matthew used the word basanizo, which can refer to torture. The waves were thrashing them because of the high winds. And Mark recounted, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. They were tired. They were wet. They were struggling against the squalls and the white caps. Were they scared of the storm? Maybe. You know, four of them were experienced fishermen, so maybe not. I don't know if they were or not, but they were working their tails off to do what Jesus said to get across to the other side. And Jesus came to them walking on the water. Now, why is that important? Because walking on the water is impossible. You can't do that. People don't do that. So if Jesus was doing it, it says something about him. It tells you something about him. He is sovereign and in command of the elements of the universe. He commands water molecules to hold him up and they obey because of his power and authority and supremacy. Hendrickson said, quote, For him, the very laws of nature are means for the effectuation of his purpose. The winds cannot overturn him. Are they not his willing messengers? The waves cannot drown him. Are they not his obedient servants? End quote. Every single molecule of the universe bows to the supremacy of Christ. Now, some say it's myth. Some say that he walked on a sandbar or that he walked on ice. And they come up with all kinds of fanciful theories about this because their materialistic presuppositions inhibit them from believing the simple truth. Many people presuppose that God doesn't exist or that supernatural things like this just can't happen because, hey, the laws of are absolute. And so they reject this while ignoring that the man writing about it was actually there and saw it happen. But not only Matthew, John, James, Peter, Andrew, and the other seven. And Calvin believed that others were with them in the boat, which is possible. So we're talking multiple witnesses here, folks, eyewitnesses. You see, lack of evidence has never been the problem. Never been the problem. No amount of evidence can make the blind see. Folks, by dismissing the miracles of Jesus, people dismiss their only hope in life and death. They do it to their own detriment. Unbelief, skepticism, doubt, they only ever undermine hope. You know what? It's true. The most hopeless people in the world are godless people. Jesus walked to them on the water. Therefore, you have hope that he comes to you in your storms and he helps you. Take heart. Be of good cheer. The, the, the power and grace of Jesus are sufficient to calm your frightened soul when life and the struggle with sin is so scary, so unsettling. Psalm 89 verse 9 says, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 93, 4 says, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. 
For our faith to grow strong, we must not doubt that Jesus possesses absolute and supreme power and commands every single molecule in the universe unto his purpose and unto his glory. Number four, Jesus the reassuring. Jesus the reassuring. Now, if you were on a boat in a storm, getting thrashed by wind and waves, working painfully to make it across a big sea in the dark, and then you saw someone walking towards you on the water, folks, your clothes would be wet for more reasons than the seawater. That's terrifying. Verses 26 and 27. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And when Matthew wrote those words, the image of that event was vivid in his mind. He wrote knowing what that fear was like in that moment, knowing how astonished he was to see the master Jesus walking to him on the water, knowing the comfort of hearing his master's voice, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And the phrase is, it is I, that can also be translated, I am. Isn't that interesting? He came to them in their struggle and terror, and he quickly spoke to them words of assurance. Have courage, be comforted. It is I, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid because I am here with you. That's the idea. Jesus does send his disciples into some severe storms. Isn't that right? Some scary storms. But he is then with them, through the storms to comfort them with his voice. Jesus is quick to assure his fearful disciples. Jesus is quick to comfort those who belong to him. But with what? What does he comfort them with? Words. His words. Gospel words. Words to assure us that he is with us. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Why not be afraid? It is stinking scary out there. Why not? I'll give you a thousand reasons to be scared. It's scary. The Savior said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The presence of our omnipotent Lord in our trouble is our comfort and assurance. Notice that the wind and the waves, they didn't die down the moment Jesus uttered and assured them. Because moments later, we see that Peter is distracted by the forceful wind and was afraid again. Jesus meant for his presence and his words to calm them amidst the storm. So folks, know your Savior's power. Know your Savior's heart. Know that he wants to calm you by his presence and calm you with his word. Make sure that when you need solace, when you need comfort for the soul, that you are looking to the right thing, the presence and word of Christ. Now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. Number five, Jesus the sustaining. Jesus the sustaining. Jesus supports us. Jesus upholds us. Jesus keeps us secure by his omnipotent grace. What kind of guy was Peter? When we see in scripture his life, I mean, he was passionate for sure. He was bold. 
He was impulsive. He was a leader type. And when Peter realized it was Jesus and not some apparition, he called out to his Lord. When Peter uh, wanted, I I think, Peter wanted an audible uh, confirmation of the identity of Jesus to bolster his confidence. I think that's what what he was looking for. Seeing Jesus walk on the water, Peter wanted to go to him, and when Jesus issued the command, come, it was all that Peter needed. Out of the boat he went, onto the waves. Peter had to get to his Lord. Now, some people, and folks, this is just amazing to me, how people can take the scriptures and twist them into something ridiculous. It's amazing to me. It's, and it's not fair to what the, the authors were intending to write. Some people think that when Peter began to sink, he had lost faith in himself. Do you get that from this text? That's ridiculous. Some people use this text to argue that Jesus has faith in us. That when Jesus said in verse 31, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt that he meant, why did you doubt your own ability to be like me? And that's very dangerous thinking. That's new age thinking. That's self-help thinking. That's anthropocentric thinking. That's not biblical thinking. Verses 28 and 29, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, and that probably carries the sense of since it is you, since it is you, I think that's the sense of it, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. I want you to think carefully about what happened there. First, before Peter stepped on the water, he knew that he needed an effectual command of Christ. Peter realized his inability apart from Christ. He wasn't going to walk on the water apart from Christ's power and Christ's command and Christ sustaining him. But Peter also exercised great faith in trusting the power and command of Christ by getting out of the boat. Peter boldly believed that if Christ issued the command and Christ sustained him on the water, that he could indeed walk to him, which is what he ultimately wanted. That's not faith in self, that's faith in Christ. Dr. Hendrickson helpfully described this event, quote, it implies consciousness of utter dependence on the authority and the power of Jesus. Peter knows that without the master's permission, he will not be allowed to walk on the water and that apart from Christ's power, he will not be able to do so. So he asks that this permission and this power be granted. Peter's action, therefore, starts out as a deed of faith and devotion, end quote. Faith in Christ got Peter out of the boat. Second, it was only after Jesus gave his divine command that Peter climbed out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. Peter wanted the command, he asked for the command, he waited for the command, he heard the command, he got out of the boat and walked on the water to his sustaining Lord because of the command. And I think Matthew made the object of Peter's faith quite clear. Not Peter himself, but Peter's Christ, Peter's Lord, Peter's God. Folks, there's a way to read this passage that makes Peter the centerpiece And there's a much, much, much better way to read this passage that makes Jesus the centerpiece. We should always be skeptical of a man-centered way of reading the Bible. Any type of interpretation that leaves you more confident in yourself than in Jesus is leading you away from Jesus. 
Keep Jesus at the center where he belongs. And when he's at the, the center of how you understand scripture, you will find your hope. You will find your hope. Jesus sustained Peter on top of the water. Jesus dispensed the divine power and grace through true faith. Will Jesus not also sustain you in the tempest of your life through true faith? Ask Jesus to sustain you with his power and grace and spirit. Jesus said on another occasion, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Hearing Jesus calling you to come to him, okay, get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. Don't look at the wind and waves. Just look at Christ with confidence. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Number six, Jesus the rescuing. Jesus the rescuing. Years ago when Jeremiah was a baby, just a little boy, he's, he's uh, 13 now, so this is a long time ago, we took a trip to, uh, with some friends to their lake house, and Jeremiah and I were in the lake, and we're, we're swimming there, and he was in his cute little swimmies, and I was in my cute little swimmies. Just, just kidding, no swimmies. I can swim. And, and I let him float a bit. I let my hands off, and when you're like, oh, you know, I was right there, folks. I wasn't like chucking Jeremiah in the water, but I was right there, okay? I'm letting him go for a little bit, and he, he, he just starts to drift forward, and all of a sudden, he's face down in the water. And folks, I froze for a split second. And Christina was like, Jonathan! And that woke me up, and boom, I up out of the water and took my son, who was, who was startled and sputtering, out of the water. If my son is face down in the water, I want nothing more than to quickly lift him out of the water. I don't want my son to drown. I love my son. I want his best. Now, I want you to imagine like a little kid at, the, uh, at poolside, okay? There really are two things that should comfort reluctant kids hunched, working up the nerve to jump to daddy, okay? One, their daddy's strong, all right, and ready to catch, catch them. And two, if they would happen to short it, their daddy is right there and will quickly lift them out of the water, all right? If they focus on the water, they might not jump, right? But, but if they focus on their daddy, they will jump probably, and maybe they'll jump with a little bit more gusto, a little bit more confidence to get out there, have a little bit more fun with it and let go. Peter's faith in Christ got him out of the boat, and that's commendable, folks. However, Peter's faith wavered when he focused on the wind, and at that moment, he sunk into more than just water. He sunk into unbelief. He, he had faith, right? True faith. But it was weak, and unbelief began to sink him. Believers fight against unbelief. We have to continue to repent of it. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, and it could read, when he saw the forceful wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And we can relate. The threatening wind and his own fear distracted Peter from the power and provision of Christ. The squalls turned his boldness into doubt. Ryle said, fear took away his memory. Alarm confused his reason. He thought of nothing but the winds and waves and his immediate danger, and his faith gave way. 
we can relate. We can relate. Christ was no less sufficient when Peter saw the wind and began to sink than when Peter got out of the boat. Nothing had changed about Jesus. Peter had changed his perspective. He moved his attention from Jesus to the tempest. And folks, our faith can be bold sometimes. I mean, things can go well. God is good and we trust him and we get through things and we say, oh, how faithful God is, but then we lose heart. We lose heart, we get discouraged, we, we get overwhelmed, and as we start to sink, we are then reminded as we think, I'm going down, that, of our need of God's grace, of our need of him to, to come to us and to rescue us. Christ allowed Peter to sink, right? Why? To expose his unbelief, to expose his weakness and desperate need. Was Christ not continuing to be in command when he went down, started to go down? He let Peter sink. And when Peter cried out, Lord, save me, what did Jesus do? Verse 31, and here we see the word again. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Not you of no faith, not you, oh, stupid little man, but, oh, you of little faith. Peter had true faith, but it was little faith. It was frail faith. It was weak faith but Jesus never lost control. Peter began to sink, and that scared him. I mean, I can't imagine what was running through his, his head at that time. He was scared, but Jesus was quick to respond to his cry for help. Quick, right there, boom, helping him. And Jesus reached out his strong hand, and he took hold of Peter. You know he could have just said the word, rise, and it would have happened. But he, he reached out, and he took hold of him. Peter could feel his grasp. And I think that communicated something to Peter in his fear. The master is rescuing me. I can feel his presence. He's here. He's close. Did Jesus let Peter drown? No, of course not. He rescued him. And if we think about this just in life, Christians do sometimes physically drown. Okay, but this event shows you that Jesus is sufficient to rescue you from your sin and your misery and that you will never drown in the raging sea of God's wrath and judgment. Jesus powerfully takes hold of his own, those who belong to him, and he rescues them to never, ever, ever lose them. And Jesus rebuked Peter for his little faith right there in the middle of the storm. See, you and I wouldn't. You and I would say, this is a sensitive moment. I don't want to rebuke them. I mean, we don't rebuke people much at all, but it's like, man, now is not the time. Right in the middle of it, he's calling out his unbelief. Why? Because Jesus is mean? No, because Jesus cares. Peter should not have doubted Christ. That's the point. It shook him up. And, and in the rebuke was the master's love. It doesn't come with the tone, why are you such a loser, Peter? That's not the tone. What a moment for a rebuke, right? But the rebuke of the master came with compassion to do what? To strengthen and embolden Peter, to get him in the right place again. Folks, we need to know the love of God and that even though our faith wavers, Christ holds us fast. Ryle said, quote, he would have us know that doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us, end quote. 
even when your faith is small, the Lord is there ready to help you. That's very, very comforting. That will comfort you on a thousand sleepless nights. It's the only thing. What happened next? Verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. That's marvelous. And, and Matthew doesn't say that Jesus spoke and calmed the sea, the wind. He it doesn't say that. But can't we, isn't it implied? Isn't that kind of the idea there? And I like what D.A. Carson said, quote, thus Peter in this pericope is both a good example and a bad example, end quote. So Peter, he had bold faith to get out of the boat, but then his faith wavered and he began to sink, and that's not so great. But guess what? This is the Christian life. It's a roller coaster. It's up and down. Sometimes things are going well, and we're like, my faith is strong, and in the next moment, what happened? Things don't go so well, and we're doubting again. But we are comforted to know that Jesus is with us, and Jesus is the steady one. He doesn't waver. So let's learn from this. Seven, Jesus the divine. Jesus the divine. This text proves to us that Jesus is God. Now the skeptics are partly right. According to the laws of nature, it is absolutely impossible to walk on top of the water. That doesn't work, folks. But God created and commands the water, and if he walks or wants to walk on the water, by all means, he will walk on the water. He, might, he may do that. He is God. The laws of nature bow to the supremacy of Christ. And that, dear ones, that builds our confidence in him because we know who he is and what he's capable of. Now, you and I should respond in the exact way that the people in the boat responded. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. That's a true confession of faith. You are the son of God. I will worship you because that is who you are. And I love what one study note said. It said the miracle was so spectacular that otherwise monotheistic Jews actually worship Jesus. They were only to worship Yahweh. This was so amazing that monotheistic Jews are bowing and worshiping Jesus as the Christ. Huge moment. That says a lot in that little portion of scripture. I think their confession was legitimate, a legitimate confession of faith. I think it had messianic meaning and intent for them, but I also think that it went beyond what they understood they were confessing. I think it meant more that would be revealed to them in due time. We must confess his name, brothers and sisters, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth, for he is God and he is worthy of our worship and our trust. He is able to help you suffer. He is able to help you repent. He is able to help you make progress in holiness and sanctification. And verses 34 through 36, once again, they confirm his divinity. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Folks, only God does that. Only Christ can be your hope in life and death. Lastly, number eight, Christ our hope in life and death. If you take this passage to heart, it will give you hope in the tempests of your life. If you ignore it, you should leave here totally unsettled because you have no hope, none. 
until you look to Christ. He is the only hope in life and death. So, so let's think clearly about this then. Your hope is not that your faith is worthy. Oh, that your faith is worthy. I'll take com- confidence in my faith is worthy. No, or that you have what it takes to, to persevere through it. Man, you got this. That's not the message here. That's not the message. Your hope is that Christ is strong and he's with you and he'll help you persevere and he'll rescue from doubt. And if you begin to sink, he's right there to immediately respond to your cries of help. Our hope is not that we are strong in the storm, but that Christ will come to us in our weakness. He'll rescue us and he will calm our souls amidst the storm. 